I'm glad y'all are here. I'm going to count that the fact that you're here this morning as an ordained uh, appointment. I think it's uh, important to recognize that. You, you probably thought it was your idea, but I think that you're here by um, a God that uh, plans and works all things for good for those who love him, that I'm going to hope and pray that your presence here this morning is part of that, and mine as well. I'm going to pray that this moment is um, all that he intends it to be. I want to encourage you um, in Isaiah, which is where we are this morning, is where we've been these last few weeks. Uh, there, there's not room for passengers in Isaiah, only participants. And that goes, you're listening. I'm speaking to your listening. If you are here this morning thinking uh, that you're just going to kind of listen to a speech, um, you're going to struggle because you're going to need to have your Bible. You're going to need to see some of the things that we have in front of us. And I'm going to expect you, um, hope and pray that you can be a, a, a participant with me and not just a passenger. Let's pray toward that end. Uh, let's pray for no tryptophan-induced uh, naps. Um, Pray for our real attentiveness this morning as we consider uh, God's word together. God, what a great, great uh, opportunity we have this morning, Lord. I'm thankful for what you have uh, given me this week. I'm uh, eager to share it, Lord. I, such good uh, news, such a good, um, um, such help uh, to everything that my life is about, and I can't wait to share that with this people, Lord. I pray for uh, an, att an attentiveness this morning that is greater than any one of us is capable of. I, from, uh, I'm sure there's a gamut of attentive attention spans in this room, Lord. I know that the Spirit can work with every single one of those attention spans and speak to every single one of us in a surgical and helpful way, and I pray that that will happen, Lord. I, I pray that you will speak in spite of me and uh, through me and um, that you will speak clearly to your people and that you'll equip us um, to walk faithfully uh, in this, this context, Lord. I, two, I want to pray for local churches. I don't have a particular church to lift up this morning, Lord. I just want to lift up the Christian context, um, the community of faith here in Greenville. Lord, I just pray for a fidelity, um, for, um, I guess, a spirit of hope for one another and spirit of uh, camaraderie, um, of kinship in a shared Lord and a shared uh, empty tomb, shared Holy Spirit, shared baptism, Lord, that we can uh, celebrate what you're doing in each other's church families and through each other's church families that um, we can cheer for more of the same, Lord. We just want to lift up our local churches and pray that you would guard us, guard our community, our Christian community, from ever entertaining a spirit of competition, Lord, that we would want your greatness in and through uh, your people in this community, period through a variety of, of types of churches. And uh, we're thankful that we have a, a large variety of those here and pray that you would use that uh, to reach your people. Lord, we turn this time over to you and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 8 this morning. Uh, if you need a page number, if, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that Bible in the seat back in, in the seat bottom actually in front of you. And it's on page 572, Isaiah 8. Christy's mom passed away this week, and uh, some of y'all know that. Aaron sent out an email this week, and um, Christy and I have been really blessed that neither of our parents, neither both sets of parents have lived this long, and we're just thankful that I, I didn't know either of my granddads, so I, 
I'm jealous of my own children that they've known that both sets of grandparents this long, and this is our first loss of either set of our parents. Um, of course, we knew that it was going to happen to one or the other of us in time. Uh, nobody uh, can live forever, and we suspected that we would likely be burying uh, our parents at some point, and this is the first of those. Um, as we watched Christy's mom pass away this week, it wasn't a real abrupt event. It took place over a few days, uh, really could say weeks, but I was there for a few days of that. Um, I couldn't help but celebrate, even though we were watching something that's really sad and painful, especially for uh, Christy and the, the, you know, the immediate family. It's painful for anybody to watch that, but um, I couldn't help but think about this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Just listen to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Okay, Paul is talking about dead people. He calls them asleep. He doesn't even call them dead people. Now he's talking about dead Christians. He calls them asleep. We don't want you to be um, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I couldn't help but think about that and uh, thinking back and connecting to my mother-in-law's confession from years ago, she trusted Christ as her Savior and Lord and um, walked with him uh, in different seasons uh, for the majority of her life. And um, that's something that I held on to and something that I considered as we watched her die, that we weren't going to grieve as the world grieves a loss. Because most of the world grieves with no hope. But we have a different sort of grief. You could call it even a, a different name. It's still grief, but maybe call it a, a, a hopeful grief. We're to have a, what a, a, a word that I've, I've actually made up for this morning. I, I, I'll do that from time to time. When I can't find a good word, I'll, I'll uh, make up a word. And the word for the morning that I've made up is the word contra view. It's contrary view. It ought to be a word. It just sounds like a word, contra view. So contra view is the word that's going to come up over and over and over again, that we should have a contrary view of everything, including something as common as death. God's people are to have a different set of eyes experiencing what everyone else experiences. The very same things, like the loss of loved ones, but with a different set of eyes experiencing them and interpreting them in a different way. Like Paul even calling it something altogether different. Oh, they're asleep. I hope this morning will be that for you. It will be something that will help you develop a contraview of everything. That it will encourage you in ways that you may see things differently, but it may help you, help, help you in ways that you may not. Isaiah is a complicated book. It is. I, I spend uh, a good portion of my week trying to figure out how to reacquaint you with the story. So I'm hoping that the Lord will use a very brief summary of Isaiah's story at this uh, point this morning to help you get the rest of the morning. Isaiah is living in a very vivid promise that God made to David to never leave or forsake Judah. That's Isaiah's context. That's the way he's seeing the world, trusting that God is going to protect Judah. Yet he has a front row seat witnessing the people of Judah, starting with King Ahaz, as dismissing God. 
and ignoring this promise and relying instead on their own plans and their own schemes and their own designs for protection and doing that faithlessly and godlessly. Isaiah is in the middle of this context, trusting the Lord and trusting a promise made to David, yet watching a people pass on God. There are three children that we've met so far in Isaiah. The first child is Isaiah's firstborn. His name is Shir Jashub. His name means a remnant shall remain. God told Isaiah to bring this lad. Remember, he had the cub's cap on after celebrating the win of the cubs. And he goes out and he meets King Ahaz. And in some ways, the name of the boy is the message for Ahaz. Ahaz, if you continue on with your godless plan, only a remnant, only a few people in Judah are going to remain. It's the bad news for Ahaz. But the good news for Isaiah is judgment is coming to Judah. But guess what? Some are going to survive. A remnant's going to remain. That's the first kid that we met in Isaiah. The second kid that we met in Isaiah is a kid named, a sort of a metaphorical kid named Emmanuel. It's the child of the virgin. We believe that that is speaking of this remnant that means effectively this people that are going to survive this time of judgment, that they can actually be called, hey, God is with them. Those are the ones who God is with. They can be called Emmanuel as God preserves and protects and is with that people. And then the third child we met was Isaiah's secondborn, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed the spoil, hasten the prey. It's a, his name is a message, a reminder that there is a flood of judgment coming into Judah and it's going to come at the hands of the Assyrian armies. Judgment on Judah is imminent. That's Isaiah's context. And Isaiah, in this context, finds himself as a prophet, speaking these messages, speaking these oracles, but now finding himself also as a shepherd. Now he's going to be a shepherd to this people, this remnant called Emmanuel. He's to guide them as he speaks truth to all of Judah and Israel. He's to guide this little remnant through these tough waters of judgment. And that's the nature of this next oracle. That goes verses 11 through 15 is where we're going to be this morning. It's the third oracle of the chapter, and it is directed to this little remnant. It's for these guys that are going to survive this time of judgment. It's the first time that we've considered an oracle that's for the remnant, which is pretty exciting. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 first. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now this is a strong message for Isaiah for sure. He says in here, the first verse in 11, he says, This was given to me. God put his strong hand on me. But then the words change later on. The verbs change to the rest of the oracle to plural verbs. So we know that God's not just speaking to Isaiah, but he's speaking to all the remnant. And the the encouragement there, the charge there, this strong message for Isaiah is summarized in verse 11. He warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Now let me identify for you who this people are. If you haven't followed that yet, 
This people are the people of Judah, the masses. We're going to call them for the morning the many. You're going to hear that over and over and over again. And you're going to hear me refer to the remnant as the few. Okay, Do not walk as the many walk through this time. He warned him not to walk in the way of this people, the faithless many. And he gives the few or the remnant two charges in verse 12. Do not call conspiracy what this people, the many, the masses, call conspiracy. And do not fear what they, the many, the most of Judah, fear. Let's talk about the conspiracy and fear. Let's figure out what those are. What is he speaking of here? First of all, the conspiracy, this likely, now this is a very difficult word, and different commentators handle it differently. But This is where most of them land. This is where I'm landing. I think it, the, the message is clear. This, I believe, has to do with what is transpiring to the north. You've been paying attention these last few weeks. You know that there's a couple of mice that are coming after a mouse. You remember back to the very first illustration. And those two mice are Ephraim or Israel, a.k.a. Israel, or Syria. These two northern kingdoms are going to come after or wanting to come after Ahaz and Judah. That appears to be the conspiracy that he's talking about. There's a conspiracy where two kings are talking together. And those two kings, King Pekah of Ephraim and King Rezin of Syria, are saying, hey, let's go after Ahaz and let's depose this joker and replace him with a Syrian king. That's the conspiracy that I believe we're talking about here. And it is indeed a conspiracy. Two kings are conspiring with one another to kill, replace Ahaz with a Syrian king. Now the fear. They're afraid of Ephraim and Syria. They, and I mean they, Ahaz and the masses are the many of Judah. They're afraid of the plans of Pekah and Rezin. They're afraid of this. Let's personalize this. Just imagine what this would be like. They're afraid of armies and soldiers with long pointy spears with swords, with chariots, with all these instruments of death. They're afraid of these massive armies coming with all these instruments of death and a battle cry behind it. They're afraid, very realistic fear, of losing their livelihood, of losing their freedom, of losing their independence, of losing their land, and ultimately losing their lives. They're afraid of losing everything. This is a very real and fair, let's acknowledge it, fear. We have a very real conspiracy going on in the north. And we have a very real and fair fear to deal with. An understandable fear. But God calls this remnant, this few, this people within a people, to a contraview. He calls them to a very contrary perspective On these events, these very same events, he calls them to interpret their circumstances differently than the many. And you got to get that. That's the whole crux of the morning. We're going to see how in a moment. But God calls the few, the remnant, the people within a people, to interpret their self-same, the identical circumstances, altogether differently. Let's see how. In verses 13 and the first part of verse 14. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. 
and he will become a sanctuary. He gives them two charges here, two specifics for the remnant. First of all, him you shall honor as holy. That's the first part. We get some clue as to what he's talking about there as we think back to what went down in verse or in chapter 6 when Isaiah had the throne room vision of the Lord. You may remember how that went down. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the train of his robe filling the temple, and it leaves him transformed. It leaves him altogether different. It leaves him attentive, willing, and sendable from that moment on. This encounter literally left him changed. He's left mindful of the Lord from that point on. He's left aware. He's left attentive. He's left watchful of God. It's like in that chapter, in chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw the train of his robe filling the temple, he saw the cherubim, he saw the holiness of God. It's like God gave him a new lens on life for the rest of his life. A new lens, like a lens of holiness. Man, what's your, what's your prescription on these glasses? Uh, holiness, plus or minus holiness. I don't know, I forget, Eric, Eric does my, I forget what they call it, plus or minus some Holiness. Everything I see from now point from this point on is viewed through the lens of God's holiness. I grew up when I was a kid. I told the kids about this the other day. We only had one channel at home, and it was Channel Five, NBC. That's the only channel we had growing up. That's probably hard if you believe because we have satellites with hundreds of channels now. Well, I only had Channel Five, and I had to walk uphill both ways to school, and 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 it was cold, and it was life was hard. But just imagine. That through Isaiah 6, God set the channel for Isaiah on the channel of holiness for the rest of his life. The holiness of God. Everything that he viewed from that point on is through his holiness. This gives us some sense of what the remnant is being called to. To honor the Lord as holy. In many ways, what he's calling this people to do is to honor him as holy. Basically recognizing that he governs. Their lives through and through, start to finish. No matter what's going on to the north, no matter what's happening around them, that God governs their lives. He is charging them with having a different view on the world through the lens of his holiness. Honoring him as holy means that they are to be governed by an ever-present awareness of the Lord. Let's start there. An ever-present awareness, just an awareness of the Lord. As they're seeing things unfold up north in this conspiracy, they are to first of all be aware of the Lord. And then through fresh and frequent views of God, they will be left seeing him as the most significant reality of their existence. Here's what he's calling them to in this first charge to honor him as holy. Is Here's the beauty of it is that Honoring him as holy is going to make him more real to them than the armies of the north. Let's just boil it down, condense it down. Viewing him, fresh and frequent views of his holiness will leave the armies of the north still there and still coming. But secondary to a God who is not an accessory to their lives, but is the centerpiece of their lives. 
That's first of all, the charge is to honor him as holy. And second of all, which is a result of that, let him be your fear and your dread. You remember, you may remember in Isaiah 6 how Isaiah responded to seeing the holiness of God. He says, man, I'm ruined. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean people. He is looking for a crack and a crevice in the floor to hide in view of God's holiness. I think God's holiness should inspire fear and dread. It should. And we're doing a disservice to our children. We're doing a disservice to our churches. We do a disservice to the faith when we don't develop that in tomorrow's church. A healthy fear of the Lord. As we sat with Christy's mom, I was reading some psalm, various psalms to her. And um, she was kind of in and out of what may have been lucid at this point, but uh, that people say that they, people can hear and, hear and process things even if they can't acknowledge it. And I was just reading various psalms, and I read this psalm and listened to this psalm and looked for a theme. It was timely fitting for her as she was hours away at that point from death. But I think it's fitting for us, and it certainly would have been fitting for this people, for this remnant. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Listen for a theme. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. What a great psalm. I mean, is anybody just really enjoying? Nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's good. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting, in verse 17, to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Man, the fear of the Lord is a good thing to build into our children, to remind one another of that he's not a chump. He's not blind. He's not an old grandpa in the sky wearing an old man t-shirt drinking cocoa saying, crawl up in my lap. Man, we would do well to climb into Isaiah 6 and have long drinks of the holiness of God and recognize that he should be feared. We are not expected to be fearless when in danger. I want you to notice that. He doesn't say, don't be afraid when the northern armies are bearing down. He expects them, though, to fear something different than what the masses fear. To fear someone different than who the masses 
fear. But here's the good news in this. Here's the good news in honoring him as holy and then having that resultant fear and dread. It's a strong promise right there at the last part or the first part of verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary. And that's the promise for a healthy approach to the Lord, honoring him as the Lord. And then having the resultant fear and dread is he becomes a sanctuary. That's the word that was used for the tabernacle and temple. And it gives the sense that he will be their dwelling place when northern armies conspire and Syrian armies eventually, or excuse me, Assyrian armies eventually invade. He will be their dwelling place in that mess. Such a great promise to this little remnant facing the terrible flood of judgment on Judah. Honor him as holy In all the mess, let him be your fear and your dread, and he will be a sanctuary for you, a refuge and a place of peace. It would be nice if the passage ended right there, but you know it doesn't. You know it continues on to the second, really the second part of verse 14 and then all of verse 15, and it says some more stuff about how people respond to God or what's in store for everyone else. This is for the masses. That sanctuary is for the few. But the rest of this is for the masses. He will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. Look at that word, many. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now here's the reality. To the unbelieving that have no use for God, guess what? God still is. He still is. You can't unbelieve him away. He still is, and he will be reckoned with. He's like an obstacle in the the path of life that you cannot go around. You can't go over it. You can't go through it. You just have to reckon with it. To the believing remnant, the few, he's a sanctuary. But to the unbelieving many, he's a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, a trap, and a snare. To the believing, he's like this big, stable, awesome, static cornerstone. When everything else is all over the place, you got this to hold on to. But to the unbelieving, he's like this big, glaring, offensive problem. Man, have you ever wondered why atheists work so hard at disproving God? I just want to say, why are you so agitated if he doesn't exist? What if I believe in unicorns? Are you going to be mad and try and disprove unicorns? If it's nothing to you, why are you so hacked about it? Because God is an offense to those who are not trusting in him. He's offensive. Man, here's the reality. God will be experienced as either judge or sanctuary, period. There's no third option. He will be experienced as judge or sanctuary. Now, there's an interesting little message in here of proportions. You notice he points out the word there that many shall stumble upon it. And he also says both houses of Israel. He's developing the thought, that the reality that most will find God offensive and few will find sanctuary in him. The many and the few is something that comes up a lot in the Bible. 
You might have heard Jesus speak at one point in Matthew chapter 7. If you'd like to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. I just have a few places for you to turn today. But listen to this passage in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives the same principle. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Like a few, small, slim, remnant. Man, the proportion is important. I think it's helpful. It's bound to have been helpful for them in that context. I can't imagine that it wouldn't be helpful in that context. As you're living in Judah, and as most people that you know are rooting for Ahaz and rooting for this conspiracy, or this, this approach or response to the conspiracy to get King Tiglath-Pileser, the Syrian king, involved, man, I would have just imagined that as most and the masses are doing that, that you're probably going to wonder, am I in the right path? It's very human for us to measure the validity of our path by how many people are around us. A few years ago, I did a, a triathlon with my older and younger brothers, my older brother and my younger brother in Louisiana, and it, it had a, a, the last part of it, the run, was a trail run, so it wasn't a real obvious path. It was a path, but there were many turns, and it wasn't well marked. And I found myself about halfway through that run running by myself. And I thought, either I'm winning or I'm lost. And turns out I was lost. We have enough sense to know that, man, if you're by yourself, you may, you may be losing and you may be lost. And, man, I think that's a... I mean, how many times do you go to a restaurant where you walk in a restaurant where there's standing room only? And you're like, this must be great. And then you walk in a restaurant, there's like nobody there. You go, Ugh, this must be terrible before you even eat a bite. You've already made a judgment based on who's there or not. i got to tell this story. This is one of the perks of being a a pastor, a preacher, is that you can tell stories on people, and they can't do anything about it. So I'm going to tell a story on Neil Payne. Neil Payne is a clothing horse. I don't know if you know this or not, but Neil just is, he digs clothing. He likes his clothing. In fact, he's been stalking a jacket for months, all through the summer, this Arcteryx jacket. It's, it's so cool that you can't even spell Arcteryx. Like, it's got hyphens and apostrophes and all kind of crazy stuff in it. But this jacket is cool. In fact, I smiled this morning when he was wearing it, walking in. I'm surprised you're not wearing it right now, Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. He could be 100 degrees, and he's wearing it. He stalked this jacket for months. And finally, he went to REI, and he bought it. And uh, he was telling me about this purchase. He said, yeah, man, I was talking to the guys at REI. And when I was checking out, you know, they told me, he told me, he said, man, probably 70% of the REI employees wear this jacket. He was, that was a plus for him. I said, man, I, I, I'm not sure that's a plus for me. First of all, let me just inform you that 63% of statistics are just made up. <laughs> Secondly, I would want to know what the 30 are wearing because the way is narrow that leads to life. And he said, okay, now that you've Jesus-juked me, that was his response. <laughs> okay, I've clearly, clearly been Jesus-juked. I don't, I don't remember where the conversation went from that point on, but we really got a kick out of it and laughed at that. Should be, uh, ironically, and, and I'm telling that as a funny story, the way we begin to view the world, what are, what are the few doing? <laughs> because we're in, in the narrow path. We're with the few. How are the few viewing this election? How are the few viewing the state of our country? 
How are the few viewing an Ebola outbreak? (laughs) Because I want to view those sort of circumstances like the few, because I'm part of that few. And the lens for that few, remember, is plus or minus holiness, the holiness of God. Same circumstances, but we're seeing them in a different way with the rest of the few, with the rest of the remnant. The proportion, I think, is helpful. The few and the many, the remnant, the rest, sanctuary, judgment. Man, it's a beautiful proportion here. Now, let me just give you the summary of the oracle, and then I have really just two application points. The summary of the oracle. God is calling a people within a people, the remnant and the few, to a contraview, a contrary view of the dangerous and life-threatening events that are going on to the north and will be in their own borders soon. And in that contraview, he promises sanctuary. Man, that's a good message for the remnant. Now, first application point, God's people are to see the world differently. If you hadn't gotten that already, hopefully you've, that's a lob. That's something that you may have already written down. The first thing is God's people are to see the world differently. This is a very real conspiracy to the north. I wanted to point out as I was developing that it's not a make-believe thing. They really are conspiring, Pekka and Rezin. Ephraim and Syria. It's a very real threat and a very real conspiracy to the north. The remnant, though, is to view the very same circumstance differently, and they can call it part of God's plan. They can call those very same events going on up there part of God's plan. Don't call it a conspiracy. Call it something else. Maybe call it something God allows. (laughs) Maybe even call it something God ordains. Call it something altogether different. Call it something that God permits. Call it it God's design, our reason, our purpose, knowing that you may not yet see that reason or purpose yet. That God has a reason or purpose that you may not yet see. I don't suspect that any of these people of the remnant had a full awareness of what God was doing at the time, but they're to trust him anyway. When you're in it, do you ever have a view of all of it? No, we never have a full view of something while we're in the mess of it. Let me help you with this. I want to take you to Exodus chapter 1. This is on page 45 of your pew Bible there, seat Bible. Exodus chapter 1. I want to help you with this contraview a little bit. This, I think, will help you, give you some perspective. As you're turning there... I'll just wait for you to turn. I want to finish it here in the pages. I don't want to give you any context while you're flipping. I want you to be able to climb into this brief. I'm going to give you a brief glimpse that will help you with a contraview. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. You may know how, uh, if if you don't, you you really should learn the story of the Exodus, what led up to that point. The nation of Israel, really, uh, before um, Egypt, wasn't a nation. It was just a great big old family. Okay, Jacob and his, his crew, lots of kids. Uh, you, you know the story how Joseph ends up in Egypt. You may have heard that story. Joseph's coat of many colors. Um, you know, his brothers beat him up, throw him in a 
uh, a pit. He's sold into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt. He ends up climbing the ladder in Egypt and being an official in Egypt who's able to feed his family when there's famine back in Canaan. So all of Israel, Jacob's family, ends up in Egypt, in a, a particular part of Egypt called Goshen. Okay, that's all context. Now pick up in verse 8 of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There's a new Pharaoh that says, Joseph who? I don't care about Joseph and his story. And he said to his people, to the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let's multiply, or lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. (laughs) Israelites were quite prolific. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, now that's context for the next page. The end of chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Okay, the first king that says... Joseph, or the first king, and we don't know how far along, eventually says, Joseph who? Okay, this is a later king. Okay, so Joseph is not only, he's not even close to being remembered. He's so forgotten. The only thing that this king knows is uh, Israelites make great slaves (laughs) and make some pretty nice bricks. Okay, so here's where we pick up. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Man, just imagine being an Israelite in the middle of the brick-making period. Just imagine being a slave there. Imagine being one of those that called out, maybe living and dying during a period where God hadn't moved yet. Imagine over the dinner table, mom and dad talking. Dad says, there must be a conspiracy with the the new Pharaoh, because the new Pharaoh, he he forgot Joseph. He said, Joseph who? Did you hear that? Man, our future's in jeopardy. We're going to be making bricks before we know it. This is a conspiracy. Where's God? He talks like George Bush, apparently. Where's God in all this? You can imagine the dad at the table saying, where's God? He must have forgotten us. There's this conspiracy going on where this new Pharaoh has forgotten our man, Joseph. He's forgotten that we're supposed to be here as honored guests, and now we're finding ourselves moving in the direction of being slaves? Man, where's God in this? God must not be at the helm anymore. Can you imagine that, Dad? Can you imagine that family? Can you imagine the response? But here's the good news that we know all along. As this thing is unfolding, we know that God heard, that God remembered, God saw, and that God knew about it all along. God allowed 400 years of developing darkness and slavery as the pitch pitch black backdrop of the exodus. 
If God's going to deliver his people from something, he's not going to deliver them from Disneyland. What kind of God is that? What kind of deliverance is that? Man, he brought me across the, the Red Sea from Disneyland. It was awesome. Man, he let 400 years of darkness develop on his terms, on his timetable, all the while hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing every detail, every moment. Man, it wasn't a conspiracy. It was God's plan. Man, that guy at the dinner table needed to know that. We need to know that. Romans 8, 28 is a beautiful passage, one that I think of, remember often. If you'd like to turn there, you can. You may know it by hand or know, know it by heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Man, all things? 400 years of slavery? Yes, that's an all thing. You mean 400 years of brick making? Yep, that's an all thing that God uses for his own glory on his own terms. These very real threats that Judah is facing from Israel and Syria to the north? Yep, that's an all thing, remnant. Hang in there. God sees, God remembers, God knows, and God hears. I got him out of order. Man, God's not snoozing, remnant. Hang in there. These are very real threats, but God is going to work them as an all thing for good. The coming invasion of the Assyrian army? Yes, that's an all thing too. The eventual, eventual Babylonian exile? Yes, that'll be an all thing too. God will work these as all things for his own glory. And he'll work them together for good for those called according to his purpose. He'll do that just like he ordained the unjust murder of his own son for the ultimate good. That's the kind of stuff that God does. And that should help us with a contrary view of everything. Everything. We should see all things differently. From elections to Ebola. From pathological reports. Bad ones. Cancer. To divorce papers. All things. Some of y'all are in the faith because you went through a divorce. Am I thankful for your divorce? Absolutely not. But can God take lemons and turn it into lemonade? That's what he did for you, and you're in the faith. That's the kind of God that we have. He takes these messes, and he does something altogether different with them so that we should have a lens on every single one of these circumstances and see them completely differently. From pink slips to death certificates, we're to view them differently. We're to interpret them differently. We're to have a contrary, contra view. Call out to God in those circumstances? Absolutely. Call out to him in those messes every single time. Yes, call out to them, but don't call those things what the world calls them. Call them something different because God involves, God's involved. Call them things that this God who hears, this God who sees, this God who remembers, this God who knows knows about and a God who's not going to waste that all thing but he's going to do something with it paranoia and instability are for folks who don't know who or if anyone is at the helm 
You know, that's not for us. Paranoia and instability and that sort of fear are for people that don't know who's driving. But we know. We know who knows. We know the one who sees. We know the one who hears. And we know the one who remembers. We see his mighty hand behind every page, story after story, and every circumstance. So we can see his mighty hand behind every page of every one of our circumstances. That he can use even some terrible, unspeakable experiences for his own glory to bring you even into the faith. We know that this God is merciful and patient. We know this God is not capricious or vindictive. We know this God is never idle. John 5, 17 says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The only day off that God has ever had was the Saturday of creation week. And that was just to show us how to do it. He hadn't been idle since. He wasn't idle in year 250 of the Egyptian slavery. He's not going to be idle when the Assyrians advance. He's not going to be idle when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in Babylon. He's not idle. He never snoozes. He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. Paranoia is for those who don't know who's at the helm. But we know the God who hears, the God who sees, the God who remembers, the God who knows, and the God who acts. So God's people interpret life differently every circumstance don't call conspiracy what this people this many call conspiracy God's people too secondly are to have a different fear just take you to one of the gospels Matthew chapter 8 it's page 813 of your your pew bible there Matthew Chapter 8. I hope you can see how easily we might trust in godless schemes when threatened. In times of peace, man, everybody can trust in God. Right? But when you're threatened, it's easy to go scrambling. It's easy to go looking for your own plans and your own schemes. But God's people, though, are charged with a faithful calm in the storm. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Many of his disciples were former fishermen. It would be helpful to kind of give you a little context here. Who spent a lot of time on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, You, You would expect being a fisherman, that's what they do. They followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he's asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. must have been quite a storm for a bunch of fishermen to say that. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Faith, according to the little glimpse like this, faith is to fear the God of the storm more than the storm. Faith fears the God of the storm 
more than the storm. Turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28. Do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Faith fears the God of the threat, whatever it might be, more than the threat itself. Faith fears the God who allowed, and in some cases may have even ordained the threat, more than the threat itself. Man, and when we do, then we find sanctuary. Then we find sanctuary. The last thing I want to leave you with this morning is the encouragement, the strong encouragement from this passage. I think the central encouragement is to honor the God. Honor God as holy. Honor the Lord as holy. I want you to hear these words. Acknowledge that He has the right to rule you. He has the right to rule you. That's a great first start. Acknowledge that he has the right to rule you and to use you in his plan. His plan trumps yours. Man, that's a great start. His plan trumps yours. Recognize that he's the focus of this salvation plan and that we're here for him that's a great first start. And I learned about the id when I was in, in college. I took a um, psychology class, and I remember the, the lesson on the id, thinking, man, that's interesting. This thing that, I, I don't know who it was, Sigmund Freud or somebody came up with this thing, that, this name for what we all have just by nature. I think he's just a name for a fallen nature. He gave it a special name for a fallen nature, where your first words that you learn are mine our no, our gimme, or whatever, everything that has to do with us being right at the center of it. The problem is a lot of Christians view your Christianity that way, where God's just like an accessory for you. In fact, worse, he's like a bellboy for you that's just here to fix your problems on your timetable, for, on your terms, for your plan, because you have a special plan for your life, right? Man, that's a broken view of God. That makes for a weak and flimsy and frail Christianity, too. Man, I want to encourage you to honor him as holy. Seek out fresh and frequent views of his holiness, and he'll help you see that he is the most significant reality of your existence. God is not our accessory. Let me pray. God, I pray that we, as a result of uh, really weekly views of your holiness, fresh and frequent views, of your godness and our notness, that you will shape our view of the world so that we can walk salty, bright, and aromatic in and through difficult contexts and difficult situations. Lord, I pray that in those situations that what the rest of the world, the masses and the many, are calling one thing, that we'll be able to call something totally different because we're seeing it through the lens of your holiness. 
Lord, I pray that you will continue to work this in us. I know that you already have been at work in this. And I pray that you would continue. Thankful for this message, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The supper this morning, I'm going to share with you a passage from 1 Peter. And I hope it sounds really familiar to you. Um, just listen to what unfolds here in these, in these couple of verses. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Okay, Peter is writing a letter to Christians in the dispersion all over the Roman Empire who are facing varying levels of persecution. Okay, and he's writing to them in this context. Just kind of take, take that template of where we've been this morning. The, the, the northern armies have conspired. The Assyrian armies have invaded. They're facing very real threats. Okay, and it's in that context that Peter writes to these Christians. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. Listen to what he says next. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And does that sound familiar to you? I hope it does. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Man, I hope we do that every single week as we take the supper. We consider what Christ the Lord has done for us. We consider how bad we needed it. We consider how important this meal is to us. We view this meal as a contra view. The rest of the world can look at it and say, man, that is the silliest thing I have ever seen. A little wee piece of tortilla, okay, that's not even really very good, and a little tiny little wee glass, not even the size of a shot glass, of some bad, well, lame grape juice. Not even good juice. The rest of the world can view that and say that is the most foolish thing in the world. That they look forward to this. That they race to this week after week. We have a different set of eyes on it. For us, it is a time where we have a meal with our God. We have a meal enjoying what God has done for us in Christ. We have a meal together celebrating our Savior. And counting Him, regarding Him as holy. Let's distribute the elements. Forgot my wee juice. Lame, lame juice that I won't miss. Um, I like that. Uh, I like a message that takes us to a contrary view. I think um, as a family, we've had to deal with things like blindness. You know, that's kind of been our exodus, our Egypt, I guess you could say. Uh, much more so for Evan and Luke than it is for the rest of us. Um, but it's something that we've had a front row seat to. It's affected all of us. And... Um, and God has given us a contrary view on that, ironically, a contrary view on blindness that God can use that somehow. And he has, uh, for us as a family, I don't know that I'd be doing this if it wasn't for the, the time that Christy and I had to spend with the Lord, wrangling with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord over, why did you leave something out? Why did you, why did you allow this? You knitted them together in the womb. Why would you do this? Um, but it's given us a, a realization that God really does use all things together for good. He can use a, a divorce. He can use a, 
a rough patch in a marriage. Christy and I have had many years of very difficult marriage. We have a beautiful marriage now, but it hadn't always been so. And I would say that God used that as well. I'm thankful that he uses those kind of messes, um, the uh, conspiracies that the world might call them, those things that we could look at and say, man, that's a really bum deal. Some of you, you're probably sitting here this morning thinking about things that you've gone through that say, now, I, I have a hard time, maybe and it, it's impossible even for me to call that something that God would allow for my good, but you may not be in the faith without it. You may not, you may not even know him apart from having to go through that. Consider that and think about, just take, put, put the lens of eternity on that, okay? In, in the grand scheme, is that value to you? Is eternal life with your creator valuable to you? I don't ever want to make small some of the stuff that our people have gone through because I know the catalog. A, a lot, I know a, a big part of the catalog in here. And some things are just hard to even imagine that anything like that could happen to anybody. But we have the kind of God that can redeem that. <laughs> he allowed the murder of his own son for our salvation. He's in that business of redeeming those sorts of things. Man, let's, let's enjoy together a contraview as we celebrate and enjoy our Savior. Let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink in faith. I hope this may be a catalog that we've considered a little bit this morning of God redeeming messes. We'll encourage you in the mess that you might be in, or we'll encourage you in the mess that's coming. They're coming too. They're relentless. So I hope this ministered to you this morning. Let's continue in song.